Thank you for the good singing this morning. Wonderful to sing praises to the Lord and to sing them together with God's people. Before we look at the message uh, this morning, I just wanted to add, uh, Tim announced the change in our service times to revert back to our uh, previous times. Uh, glad to elaborate on that further. I don't want to take much time, but uh, I think one of our desires when we did uh, make that alteration was for some, uh, really some time in between our morning service and our Christian Life Hour for some additional fellowship. And uh, it was also at a time when we were really, I think, lacking uh, times when we got together to fellowship. So that just was a desire, and I I trust that uh, we will have time to fellowship, whether it's after services or otherwise. Uh, We certainly fellowship in more ways than just talking with one another, Um, but uh, that is one way. I want to certainly facilitate that, but I appreciate when our services are over that uh, there really isn't an immediate mass exodus to the parking lot and everybody goes home. Um, I know sometimes you do need to do that because you've got to go do something, but really God's people love to be around each other and love to fellowship with one another, and I hope that uh, we'll continue to do that. I also, just in, uh, in speaking with people, thinking about circumstances, I really did want to make it possible for all of us to be able to meet together and fellowship together around the Word in a morning service. And uh, for different reasons, it was uh, more difficult for some, uh, regardless of uh, what the reasons may be. I really, our desire is when we get together on the Lord's Day is to be in His Word, to be fellowshipping together around His Word and Switching the schedule does not, I hope, in your mind, it doesn't in mine, minimize the importance of the Christian life hour. Uh, this isn't really a, an invitation to sleep in. Uh, Christian life hour is meant to be uh, an additional time where we take time to get into God's word and we study it together. And uh, depending on the circumstance, we've been challenged a little bit because of Zoom, to have the kind of interaction you have in a teaching time. But we'd like to be able to do that. And, of course, all of our services are purposeful. Everything that we're doing, we believe, is purposeful. It's important. Um, We do have a prayer meeting. Our church has a prayer meeting. We meet together to pray. Of course, we pray on the Lord's Day as well. Uh, I am thankful as a personal testimony that my parents made it a priority to be in God's house whenever the doors were open, whenever they could be. As a child, I didn't always appreciate that. But I will say that I received the teaching of the Word of God faithfully, consistently. And now I'm very thankful that my parents highlighted that and did that. So I say that uh, not to put an undue burden, 
I realize that there are circumstances in God's providence that sometimes challenge us from getting to services. But I want to also challenge you to be in God's house as you're able and not providentially hindered. And I say providentially, sometimes we can very easily just sort of say, oh, I can't go or I you know, have something come up, and I think we really need to weigh what, what it is that brings us to the place where we decide to do that. And we need to guard against what our natural inclination would be. And that is a distance from God and a distance from God's people. See, one thing that happens when we gather together is we certainly hear from God, but we also gather together. And what happens when you separate a coal from the fire, the other coals? You get a coal that's out here. Well, it's going to lessen in its heat, and eventually, because of the lack of heat in the center, it's going to go out. It's going to dissipate. Something also happens to this, right? The heat decreases here. And if you are born again, if you're a child of God, especially if you're a member of our church family, this is an opportunity for us to gather together, to meet together, to fellowship. And uh, it does contribute to the health, the strength of our church. It also contributes to the health and strength of each one individually. So I'm going to put that out there, put it on your heart encourage you to examine your own heart before the Lord and trust that the Lord has really something for us all to consider today. Why do we gather together? What's our purpose in, in doing this? I really don't feel like we have enough time in God's Word. And I say that, I realize our services are started. 9.30, go to about 11 o'clock, have another Christian life hour for 45, 50 minutes, maybe up to an hour, another hour in the evening. That's, that's enough to strengthen. That's enough to help a Christian on the way to heaven. Um, if you join prayer meeting, there's Bible study as well. That's another additional help. But we really don't want to just maintain, do we? We don't want to just want maintenance. And that is important to maintain our spiritual health before the Lord. We want to make progress. We want to see, don't we, the advance of the gospel through our lives? We want to see the proclamation of Jesus Christ to our neighbors to our friends, to those that we work with? Is that going to happen if we just kind of sit back and take it easy? This is a pilgrim walk. This is a narrow way. We are following the Savior. And our Savior, we know that he rested, but he also exercised himself in the ministry that God had given him to do. And we need to exercise ourselves for the sake of the gospel. May the Lord help us to truly see what his purpose 
is for us. And do you want to hear one day a well done, good and faithful servant? I want to, and as your pastor, I want you to hear that. So if I say something like this, it's really in light of that. We want to stand before the Lord, and we'll stand there together. And we want to hear well done. Not just well done, good and faithful servant, but Fallsbury and Bible Church, well done. May the Lord help us and give us grace. Turn, if you would, to Exodus chapter 20 in your Bible. Coming to the end of the Decalogue, Ten Commandments. We're going to look at the Tenth Commandment, begin to look at the Tenth Commandment in verse 17, coming at the end of these two tables, as sometimes they're called, the first four focusing on person's relationship with God, and the last six focusing on the relationship between man and man. And the 17th verse says, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And again, as we've been reminded of the context, this, of course, is the very words of God from the top of the mountain as he is speaking with a voice of thunder to his people. His people were trembling. Look at verse 18. All the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. You shall not covet. And there's a lot of additional elaboration so as to direct this commandment right to the heart of those who are hearing. Covetousness. Covetousness actually connects with the first commandment. Paul says covetousness is idolatry. So God is really still dealing with the issue of his relationship with his people, that nothing come between them and him, not even something in this world. And so when he says you shall not covet, and he focuses on the neighbor and the things that belong to the neighbor, realize that, yes, that could be a sin against the neighbor, but it's also a sin against God to desire something more than him and certainly to disobey his word because you desire something more than him. One person wrote, I consider covetousness as the most generally prevailing and ensnaring sin by which professors of the gospel in our materialistic society are hindered in their spiritual progress. A disposition deeply rooted in our fallen nature, strengthened by the custom of all around us, The power of habit and the fascinating charm of wealth is not easily counteracted. That sounds like it could have been written in the 21st century, but that's actually John Newton a couple centuries ago. 
the most generally prevailing and ensnaring sin by which, he says, professors of the gospel in our materialistic society are hindered in their spiritual progress. Is that possible? That we would be hindered in our spiritual progress because of this sin of covetousness? Absolutely. Absolutely. Newton went on to say, if we are indeed genuine believers in Christ, we are bound by obligation and required by our scriptural rule to set our affections on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. Christ has called us out of the world and cautioned us against conformity to its spirit. While we are in the world, it's our duty, privilege, and honor to manifest that grace which has delivered us from the love of the world. Christians must indeed eat and drink and may buy and sell as other people do, but the principles, motives, and ends of their conduct are entirely different. They are to adorn the doctrine of God, their Savior, and to do all for His glory. And I appreciate it. It wasn't just a couple paragraphs. It was a whole sermon on the subject of covetousness that Newton preached. Some very helpful thoughts. What are your affections? What do you intensely desire? On what do you set your desires in your mind on a regular basis? And are you taken up with that? Matthew Henry, as he spoke about his father, his father's teaching, as he talked about covetousness, he talked about The opposite, which is contentment, which is when the mind and the circumstances meet, the mind is satisfied with the circumstances, that's contentment. But he said that no condition of life will itself make a man content without the grace of God. We find Haman discontented in the court, Remember, Haman was second in charge, but he couldn't stand it that Mordecai was sitting out on the gate. Ahab discontented on the throne. Remember, Ahab actually is the king of Israel, but he can't stand it that there's a vineyard that he doesn't have. Adam, discontented in paradise. All the trees, all the fruit of the garden, yet there was one. And what happened? It was that one tree that Eve took, and of course Adam knowingly took. And then he says this, higher we cannot go, the angels that fell, discontented in heaven itself. I will be like the most high, Satan said. Even the angels sinned through covetousness. And so we have a sin here that's certainly common to man, and no circumstance in life is going to bring us to the place where we don't struggle with this sin. It's going to be the grace of God that changes us. And this command really aims, doesn't it, straight for our heart. The first major point I'd like to make is the tenth word of the Decalogue forbids the idolatry of discontentment and desire for what belongs to our neighbor. Tenth word of the Decalogue forbids the idolatry of discontentment and desire for what belongs to our neighbor. This word that's translated covet in verse 17, 
is also translated desire. It's also translated lust. It means to take pleasure in or delight in something. It's actually a neutral word, meaning that it can be used in a context of desiring something that's good and right or desiring something that is forbidden, which makes it an evil desire. The same word is used in Psalm 19 and verse 10, where it says of God's word and his law that they are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than the honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. So, of course, it's right and good to desire intensely, earnestly God's word and the teaching of God's word. But the context, obviously, here is God has set some boundaries. You shall not earnestly desire something that belongs to your neighbor. Of course, he elaborates on that with a number of different statements. So the affection, someone has said, or the emotion expressed by the term is not itself sinful, but becomes so by reason of the circumstances or the degree to which it is indulged. It's possible to desire something that is good, but to desire it more than you should. And that can become a sin as well. Turn, if you would, over to Deuteronomy chapter 5 where we find Moses giving his final expositions of the law to Israel before they were to enter into the promised land. and He was to go up to the mountain and uh, see the land before he died. But verse 21, Deuteronomy chapter 5, notice in our translation, the New American Standard, there are two words here. Verse 21, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, that's the same word, and then you shall not desire, different word, your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And so, Moses here, as he's giving, I would say this is an exposition of the law, the word that is used is a little different, but synonymous a word that means to wait longing for, longingly for, or to wish, or to sigh, or to be greedy for something. And again, even that word is a neutral word. It can be used in a context that's not sinful. You can covet, in verse 21, you can do that verb in a way that's not sinful, but certainly not when it applies to your neighbors, when anything that's your neighbor's. And you can also desire something appropriately. But again, not when it's your neighbor's. That second word, desire, in verse 21 is used when David said in 2 Samuel 23, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. The the writer of Samuel says David had a craving and said that. David had a desire and then said that. He earnestly, intensely desired the water from Bethlehem, which was his home city, which was currently occupied by the Philistines. But there are other kinds of desires. There are evil desires. There are desires for what God has not provided and what God has forbidden. Obviously, Adam and Eve in the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Turn over, if you would, to Numbers. Just back one book, Numbers chapter 11. 
another time that this word is used. Children of Israel are in the wilderness. There's a context here that I believe shows us not only the danger of covetousness, but what covetousness leads to. Look at verse 1. Now the people became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. The people therefore cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed, out, pray, prayed to the Lord, and the fire died out. So the name of that place was called Burning, or Taborah, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Now here's the key verse, verse 4. The rabble who were among them had greedy desires. There's the word. They were covetous. They had desire for what God was not providing. It says also the sons of Israel wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic, but now our appetite is gone. There's nothing at all to look at except this bread from God coming out of heaven. They're complaining about God's provision and they're longing for, desiring for what God was not providing. They're actually longing for something they had back in their slavery. They're looking at their food and they're not considering the fact that the food that they had in the past was in the context of having to slave away for the Egyptians. They were not free. Instead of looking at what they had now in their freedom and being grateful for that and grateful for the Lord's provision, they were complaining. And there's a connection. Covetousness leading to complaining, murmuring. Here it's rebellion against the Lord. Turn over, if you would, to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. Paul has some important points to make about the law in this chapter. The significance of the law, the purpose of the law. The quality of the law, you see that in verse 12, so then the law is holy, the commandment is holy and righteous and good. But Paul, as he was a teacher of the law and dealt with the law, was convicted of his sin when he was confronted with this command. You shall not covet. Look at verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. The law, by the law, he had said earlier in Romans, is the knowledge of sin. And let me just say, in terms of our evangelism, when we tell people about the Lord, the way to show someone their sin is to show them the law. The greatest commandment, the second greatest commandment, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, that shows someone their sin. Paul said, I would not have known or come to know or understand sin except for the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had 
not said, you shall not covet. So Paul here is restating the commandment that we're looking at. And again, it's a word that depends on the circumstance or the context as to whether or not it is a good desire or a bad desire. This word is used to describe an appropriate desire for food in the Gospel of Luke, a desire to see the Messiah in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus earnestly desired, same word, to eat the Passover with his disciples. But then Paul, as he spoke of his relationship to the Ephesians, he said, I have desired no one's money or their possessions in his apostolic ministry. That's not why he was preaching the gospel there at Ephesus. He wasn't covetous and coming so that he could make merchandise of those people. He was coming to give something to them says the same thing to the Thessalonians. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 6 speaks of an evil desire for meat that the children of Israel had. So it's the context that helps us to understand the nature of, is this a right and good desire, or is this an evil desire? Turn, if you would, to Mark chapter 7. Recognize that our heart, source of our desires, is evil. Jesus, keeping with the teaching of Jeremiah, other passages, Genesis chapter 9, Genesis chapter 6, teaching the sinfulness of the human heart. Verse 20 says he was saying that which proceeds out of the mouth of or out of man that's what defiles a man from for from within out of the heart of men proceed the evil thoughts fornications thefts murders adulteries and here it is deeds of coveting and wickedness and i think some related sins as you continue through as well as deceit, sensuality, particularly envy, which we'll look at, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these things proceed from within and defile the man. Covetousness defiles. Someone defined it as the excessive or immoderate desire for more and more wealth. There's a legendary story about John... D. Rockefeller, one of the wealthiest men in the history of our nation. I say it's legendary. I don't know that anybody's ever tracked down this conversation, but someone asked him, a reporter supposedly, how much money is enough? And his answer, have you heard this? Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. Someone's defined a covetous person as one who views the world around him only in light of the cravings of his own heart. And what does a covetous person look like? Thomas Watson, in his work on the Ten Commandments, described a person given to covetousness in six ways. He said a person is given to covetousness when his thoughts are wholly taken up with the world. Person is given to covetousness when he takes more effort to gain the world than to gain heaven. In other words, his priority is not on spiritual things, it's on worldly things. He also said a person is given to covetousness 
when all of his conversation is about the world. He's not talking about spiritual things. They they are not of concern to him or her. A person is given to covetousness when he so sets his heart upon worldly things that he will part with heaven for the love of them. And I'm going to expand a little bit on this one. A person is given to covetousness when he overloads himself with worldly business. Watson went on to say, He has many irons in the fire. He is so busy with his work that he cannot find time to serve God. He has hardly any time to eat his food. He has no time to pray. When a person is overly busy with the world and as Martha is distracted from the things of God by many other things so that he does not have time for his soul, he is under the power of covetousness. Does that describe you? Thoughts are about the world. Your priorities are more about the world. Your conversation is about the world. You set your heart on worldly things. You overload yourself with worldly business so that you don't have time for God. That leads somewhere. If a heart is overcome with covetousness, then there will begin to be, there already is the seed, or someone called covetousness the mother of other sins. Covetousness leads to other things. Watson said a person is given to covetousness whose heart is so set upon the world so that he does not care by what unlawful means he uses to get it. And this is where we see sometimes in our culture, sometimes in the front page of the newspaper, covetousness just comes out because some crime has been committed. The love of money, the love of money, not money, but the love of money is the root of all evil. And someone has loved money or something, and because of their love for money, they have committed a crime. They've sinned against someone else. And we need to be reminded, don't we, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. The covetous will not inherit God's kingdom because if that your life is lived for this world and the things of this world, you have made the things of this world an idol. You're not a God worshiper. You're an idol worshiper. Paul says in Ephesians 5, For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And so this isn't something that should ever be named among us. A covetous Christian is a contradiction. May the Lord, through his word today, as he's reminding us of this sin, help us to repent. It is a sin. This is an offense to Almighty God. Westminster Confession specified some of the sins, related sins, to this Tenth Commandment. What is forbidden 
what are the sins forbidden in the Tenth Commandment? The question is, the sins forbidden in the Tenth Commandment are discontentment with our own estate, envying, grieving at the good of our neighbor, together with all inordinate motions and affections to anything that is his. That means any, any action of the heart or any movement that pursues something inappropriately that belongs to someone else. That's a sin. And we can see that played out in Scripture. And let's just take for a moment a few of those statements and consider them. Discontentment with our own estate. That is dissatisfaction or disappointment with what God in His providence has allotted to you. And I want to ask you to turn to Joshua chapter 7. Joshua chapter 7. You remember the story that children of Israel had defeated Jericho. They were coming to a small city, city of Ai. They thought this will be an easy conquest, but they were defeated in battle. And what Joshua came to learn is that the reason they were defeated was because someone had broken God's commandment. Someone had transgressed against the direction of God. Someone had taken from the spoil of Jericho. And God said, all of that spoil belongs to me. But you know the story. Achan, of course, had sinned against the Lord. Look at verse 10, Joshua chapter 7. The Lord said to Joshua, rise up, why is it you've fallen on your face? Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I have commanded them. And they have even taken some of the things under the ban, and have both stolen and deceived. Moreover, they have also put them among their own things. And he says, basically, this has to be taken care of before you can proceed. And so, there was not a willingness to be forthcoming on the part of the person who had sinned. And so Joshua had to arrange all of the people and then by lot take the individual who had sinned. And that's how things play out here. Verse 16 says, So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel nearby tribes, and the tribe of Judah was taken. The idea is by lot. The Lord was revealing that somebody in the tribe of Judah had done this. Verse 17, he brought the family of Judah near and he took the family of the Zerahites. And he brought the family of the Zerahites near by man and Zabdi was taken. He brought his household near man by man. Can you imagine that process? Singling down from this huge, we read this morning, 600,000 men and now it's just being whittled down to a tribe, a family, a smaller part of that family, and now man by man. Who has sinned? It says, an Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah from the tribe of Judah was taken. And Joshua said to Achan, my son, I implore you, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and give praise to him, and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. So Achan answered Joshua and said, truly I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel, and this is what I did when I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold, 50 shekels in weight. 
Then I coveted them and took them. Who did these belong to? Well, this is a city-state conquered in battle, Jericho. But as they conquered it, that spoil, God said, is mine. So when Achan is coveting what he's coveting, he's actually coveting what belongs to the Lord. Notice what he says. I coveted them and took them. Behold, they are concealed in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath it. And of course, Joshua investigates. And then Achan, and notice verse 24, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, all that belonged to him, they brought them to the valley of Achor and they stoned them. You say, how is that justice? Why the whole family? Well, presumably there was knowledge among the family. God is the one who ordered this judgment, so you can search for the righteousness of the judgment. And I think that may be challenging, but Achan had stolen from the Lord. He had coveted and taken from the Lord. He was discontent with what God had provided. And really, they hadn't gone to Ai yet. They hadn't gone into the other battles. God was going to bring Israel into a land that was filled with houses they didn't build, vineyards they didn't plant, fruit trees that they could just pick from. The the land had already been cultivated and was being given to them. And no doubt Achan, as the rest of the children of Israel, would have found eventually a lot where God provided for him, but rather than waiting, he took. He coveted, and he took. Turn, if you would, to Matthew chapter 19. He was discontent. With his own estate. It's an interesting story as Jesus comes to what is, he's called the rich young ruler, verse 16. Someone came to him and said, Matthew 19, 16, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And he said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There's only one who is good, but if you wish to enter life, keep the commandments. Keep the commandments. And yeah, if you can keep the commandments, you can enter into life. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. 24-7, 365. 366 on a leap year. Can you do that? No, the law was given because the law, by the law, is the knowledge of sin. But Jesus here is saying, if you could keep the law, you can have life. If you can be perfectly obedient, you can earn life. Verse 18, then he said to him, which ones? Because when Jesus said the commandments, he could be thinking in terms of all the 613 of the Old Testament. But Jesus then specifies, verse 18, Jesus said, you shall not commit murder. 
should not commit adultery, should not steal, should not bear false witness. 6 through 9. Then verse 19 goes back to number 5. Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He includes, along with those commandments, the second greatest commandment. All of those things, you just keep those. Now, I don't know in the purpose and mind of God why he did not quote the fifth commandment first. Perhaps he was bringing to that man's attention something that that man needed to hear about that commandment, honor your father and mother. But whatever the case, the young man looks at those commandments and he says, I got that. I've done that. This is a real misunderstanding of the nature of the law. But he says, verse 20, young man said to him, all these things I've kept, what am I still lacking? Now, I write interpretation of the law, and Jesus isn't taking the time to explain here that the law is spiritual, that he's not only talking about those outward actions, but the inward as well. He uses the Sermon on the Mount to do that. But here, he's going to draw attention to that 10th commandment as he gives this young ruler a command. Verse 21, Jesus said to him, if you wish to be complete, if you wish to be perfect, Go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. So take everything that you have, sell it, take those proceeds, give that money to the poor, which means that you're you're relinquishing all of those resources that you have for yourself, and you're giving them to other people, and then you're coming, if he was to obey this, to come and follow Jesus. I think the implication Jesus was making is you'd be taken care of if you did that. It have to be faith like the rest of the disciples, but to leave all and go and follow Jesus would mean to be, put yourself in the care of Jesus and, of course, the care of your heavenly Father. But what does this young man do instead? Look at verse 22. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving. For he was one who owned much property. And he was not willing to part with that property. He earnestly desired that property based on what Jesus said, more than wanting treasure in heaven and wanting to follow Jesus. I don't know if this young man ever did come to Christ, but Jesus just used the law in a way that showed to this man that his sin was not just external, it was internal. Covetousness is something that takes place in the heart. And he was not content. He was discontent. If he was content, then he could just give it away and not have a problem. But instead, his discontentment meant, I have to have this. I want this. I have to have this. 
And this discontentment, isn't it, as Watson described it, it's a mother sin? Absalom coveted his father's throne, and as a result, he lied, deceived, rebelled, murdered, committed adultery. We looked at Gehazi's connection with bearing false witness and lying. Remember, he coveted the silver and clothing offered to Elisha, and then he lied about it. David is on his rooftop, and he sees a woman, and he inquires about her. And he, even though he had many wives, he was not content. And his heart was filled with intense desire. And even after he inquired and heard that this woman was another man's wife, what did he do? He pursued her. This discontentment and covetousness is a mother sin to other sins. It can lead to very serious sins like David murdering and deceiving and committing adultery and other things. But it can, as we looked at in Numbers chapter 11, just simply result in murmuring on our part, complaining, looking at my circumstance and wanting something different, not accepting from God what he has provided for me. What does Paul say in Philippians chapter 2? Do all things without murmuring or disputing. Let's turn there. Philippians chapter 2. Verse 12, so then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. Do you grumble? Do you complain? Do you murmur about what God has not provided? Do you look at other people, and as you look at them, it makes you discontent? Or sometimes it's not looking at other people, but it's looking at all the messages the world sends to us and says, you need this, you need this, you need this. But the reality is you don't need this because you don't have enough money to buy it. And in addition, it's not going to serve your eternal purposes anyway. No, this is this commandment is coming to us and confronting us in our very heart you can't always see a covetous person. You can see what they do, and the mother sins, you know, it, it produces these other sins, and sometimes you can tell the basis of what happens. But if you find yourself complaining or grumbling, and you think about what God hasn't given you or what you don't have, beware that you're not taken up with covetousness. Let's quickly look at envying envying. 
Not only discontentment, but envying. Desiring someone else's advantages, whether position or wealth or relationship. This is another one of the sins of the heart. Sometimes people talk about somebody becoming green with envy. I think that, as I understand it, originated with Shakespeare. It's also called the green-eyed monster. Envy is desiring what someone else has as an advantage. And that could be something that they possess. It could be some gift that they have. It could be something about them. It could be something about their personality or their looks or whatever it might be. But you're envious of them. Remember, they were envious of Jesus. Why? Pilate recognized that as the priests had turned Jesus over. Matthew 27 says, So when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that because of envy they had handed him over. Why were they envious of Jesus? Because Jesus had favor with people. Because the crowds were following Jesus and listening to Jesus, and they didn't have that anymore. They had it before. And they were so green with envy, so to speak, that they were willing to turn Jesus over and have him crucified for no sin of his, but just to get rid of him. They coveted his favor with the people. They were angry at him and jealous of him. They were covetous. So I just ask you, is there anyone in your life that you're envious of? Anyone whom, as you compare yourself to them or you look at what they have, that you wish you had what they had and you set your eyes on those things, their advantages? You start to do that, and what happens is you're discontented with what God has provided. You're not thankful for what God has given you in his providence. Really sinning against God. Sometimes the result of that envy and jealousy is we actually wish or seek to do people harm. We say things about them because we're envious of them can turn into malice and ill will and sometimes just outright hatred. There's a story about a man who was told he could get anything he wished for, but his neighbor would get double. And in his wicked heart, you know what he wished for? The loss of one eye. And you say, I would never do that. Wait a second. Don't we do that in our hearts? We wish people harm when we're envious of them. This is not a sin that is removed from us. Jesus, when he detailed the contents of the human heart in Mark chapter 7, was not saying everybody but us. No, this is us too. The seeds of all those sins are within our hearts. And we would do well to recognize when we're becoming envious. We don't always, you know, we don't always just come out and say, oh, I'm envious of that person. It's just something that's going on in our heart, and our heart is responding in that way to what we're seeing or who we're seeing. But the scriptures here confront us with something about our hearts that if we recognize it, that's a heart problem. That's a sin problem. That's a 
sin that needs to be confessed. It's a deed of the flesh, as Paul says in Galatians chapter 5. The deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy. Outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying. It really does come down again to a dissatisfaction with what God has provided. What about grieving at the good of our neighbor? That's another phrase that they use, Westminster pastors and teachers. When something good happens for someone else, do you rejoice with them? Are you upset or angry when something good happens for someone else? you wish that had happened to you, and do you minimize the blessing that it is for them? Do you complain and murmur as to why that good thing didn't happen to you, or you say, that never happens to me? You say, that never happens to me. You realize God is in control of everything. You say something like that, you're probably not right for one thing. But even if you are, you're actually murmuring against God. God hears that. Inordinate motions and affections towards anything that belongs to your neighbor. Because of covetousness, responding emotionally or in your heart, mind, actions in a way that's inappropriate. Sometimes you have to see an extreme case to understand what we're talking about. Turn back to 1 Kings chapter 21. This is the last passage we'll look at. 1 Kings chapter 21. Verse 1, came about after these things that Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard which was in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Ahab spoke to Naboth saying, Give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it's close beside my house and I will give you a better vineyard than it in its place. And if you like, I will give you the price of it in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid me that I should give you the inheritance of my father's. Okay, he wants it. He wants to obtain it. He's willing to pay for it. It's next to his house. It'd be a nice vegetable garden for him. When he can't have it, because this is a family possession, Naboth owns it, and he can't give it away, can't sell it. Verse 4. This is how Ahab responds. So Ahab came into his house sullen and vexed because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. For he said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and ate no food. Because of covetousness. I can't get what I want. And there's an emotional depression Jezebel recognizes it, verse 5. But Jezebel and his wife, uh, his wife came to him and said to him, How is it that your spirit is so sullen so that you're not eating food? And he tells her, it has to do with the vineyard. And talk about a mother's sin. Jezebel offers to take care of it for him. And how did she take care of it? 
And what did Ahab do when she had taken care of it? He went down to take possession. Jezebel was wicked in what she did. She set up false witnesses against Naboth. But Ahab, in watching that all play out, says at the end of it, now I can have it. I can get what I want. And he did get what he wanted. But he also got the judgment of God. That same place where Naboth was slain later in the chapter, he was told that the dogs would lick up Ahab's blood. That Ahab would somehow die in a way that he would shed his blood and the dogs, these unclean animals, would lick up his blood. Just an awful death for a king. Because of covetousness. Covetousness is a sin worthy of death. It is a sin that Jesus died for. It is a sin that if you're a believer, you need to confess today. Recognize it. Confess it. It is a sin that if it was the only sin, and you never turn to Christ, you would be cast into a lake of fire forever, and you would be punished for that sin against God. It's idolatry. And the offer of the gospel, of course, is Jesus came... As he came, he lived a perfect and sinless life, and he died upon the cross so that whoever would believe in him might have eternal life and have forgiveness of all their sins, including all of those deeds of coveting, all of that murmuring, all of that sinful complaining and wishing for something that you didn't have. There could be someone here today who has never turned from their sins, and maybe it is covetousness. Maybe it is. That's what your sin is. Paul said, I wouldn't have known about this matter of internal sin if the law had not said it. But sin is internal. It's not just outside. It's not just deeds of the body. It's deeds of the heart. And it must be repented of. But God is willing to forgive and wash you in the blood of Christ and save you and bring you to himself and make you one of his children. Would you come to him today? Would you find forgiveness, safety, salvation in him? Would you turn to him? Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you confront us in our need. And Lord, we are sinful people. Our hearts are wicked. And thank you, Lord, for telling us the nature of our heart, and our need for forgiveness. And I do pray that as believers today, we'd recognize the sin of covetousness when we see it in our lives, that we'd repent of it and turn from it as Zacchaeus did. And Lord, for the one who has yet to put their trust in the Lord Jesus has never found forgiveness for their sins, never been washed, cleansed by the blood of Christ. Lord, today we pray that they might turn to you and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.